Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Whether as the focus of some very controversial laws or the subject of some controversial comedians, the trans community have found themselves at the center of controversy in America and American culture. Today we'll be talking about trans inclusion and trans rights, particularly in the legal profession. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by Drew Levasseur, the Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at the LGBTQ Plus Bar Association. Drew, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you for having me. Drew, why don't we step back into law school where I suppose you had a, a very firsthand experience with diversity and inclusion. Could you share a bit about what you what you experienced? Well, I, you know, I think law school is, is hard for everybody and I, I know some people really enjoy it, but it's definitely a stressful time. And I don't know if I would have timed it that way to transition during that time. It was really challenging because it felt very public. I started law school with a, you know, a certain name and different pronouns, and I ended law school as Drew using he, him. And um, so it just felt like you know, there was no way to really hide who I was and who I was becoming. And so I kind of had to embrace it head on and try to find support along the way. But I definitely faced a lot of challenges, not just inside the school, but I think also just being so gender nonconforming was facing harassment and situations in, you know, inside and off campus. And, you know, it just was firsthand knowledge of this is so difficult to navigate the world being gender nonconforming. And so it was very eye opening for me. And I think it really helped me become a better lawyer in the long run. I imagine a lot of the viewers are disappointed in your fellow law students. We, we like to think of ourselves as a little more evolved, perhaps, or, or more sophisticated than, than some of our, our peers. But at the end of the day, perhaps we're not. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's good to talk about that. I you know I did experience bullying, even by you know peers in my school who are now practicing lawyers. You know, I think that's very real. We like to think that we're immune to that, but you know, I think everybody needs that kind of exposure to people who are different from them, and it starts I think even before law school. But definitely, when people are in law school, they need to kind of understand that. Part of our responsibility as lawyers is to be open and not just tolerant, but accepting of our peers and also our future clients. And so we kind of need that information. So it's exciting for me. I feel very passionate about working with you know law schools and law firms and in-house counsel, everybody in our profession to kind of you know expose people to look. Here are some of the people who are your colleagues, and here are some of the, the terms and language and etiquette so that people can have the tools to be the best legal professionals they can possibly be. Going back to um, the law school experience, you mentioned being bullied. Was that in the form of misgendering, or calling you by the wrong pronoun or, or the wrong name? 
I mean, that definitely happened, but I was more actually focused on the survival. You know, I was actually experiencing, I had one incident I'll share that, you know, a carload of my classmates sped up when I was crossing the street to get into the law school building, you know, as if it was a joke. I saw them all laughing and they scared me. And that was just that kind of, it almost seems like high school things, but the fact that they would still happen in law school, it kind of shows people's mentality that they really, you know, don't have an understanding of difference. And, you know, I, so it was important for me to kind of get through that experience to find support. And I did find, you know, one way was that I reached out to a, a clinical professor who was a straight woman who not part of the LGBTQ plus community, but she said, you know, look, we're going to get through this together. I don't know anything about this transgender stuff, but we're going to figure it out. And I always share that because it really doesn't take some kind of specialty. It really just takes people who are open and kind and to be a good ally. Even when we lack understanding, as long as we're approaching a topic with the right heart, perhaps we're, we're one step in the right direction. It goes a long way, for sure. Well, in law school, you mentioned you found you found support from this clinical professor. Looking around you, were there other trans law students or, or law professors? Not at my school. I was the only that I knew of, and that was really challenging. I felt very isolated and, you know, pretty unsure of what my path could look like in this career. It was hard, and I did find connection actually through the organization that I work out now, that the LGBTQ plus bar, they put on this annual conference called Lavender Law. And every year I made sure I, you know, got there wherever it was, whatever city it was in. And it was really life-changing for me. It kind of fed me every year to connect with other law students who were trans. I met lawyers and I even met a trans judge at the time, Judge Phyllis Fry out of Texas. And it just gave me an idea that I belong in this profession. There's a place for me. Wow. Were you actually able to, to have a conversation with, with the judge you mentioned? I did. It was in Chicago, and I asked if we could have a trans networking uh, reception, and selfishly, because I wanted to meet other trans lawyers, and I was looking for mentorship, and the executive director, my, you know, my current boss, actually, Darcy Chemnitz, she said, sure, let's put together a room. And it was just exciting to be in the room with, you know, I don't remember, there was probably like maybe 20 people there and some were allies, but it was a small group. And over the years, you know, I think 13 years later or maybe 15 years later, we have a full transgender institute at the conference and we've had, you know, like 200 people register. And so it's grown, you know, I've seen in my career over the past 15 years, the numbers grow and that's wonderful. But I'm also seeing and hearing that some of the stuff that happened to me 15 years ago still goes on at law school, in the workplace, and so on. And so I feel very passionate about what can we do about it. And we should probably say that, you know, just because we're able to have that conversation today with you doesn't mean that every trans person wants to be put on the spot and made to step forward into that position. What would you advise for for individuals who may want to get to know uh, a, a trans colleague or a trans friend how to initiate a conversation? 
Well, you just made a really excellent point. I mean, part of the work I'm doing is that, you know, we have this diversity, equity and inclusion consulting practice. I come in to like a law firm environment and I say here, like I'm here as an outsider, as a resource, you can ask me these questions. My goal is to lift the burden off, you know, people relying on that one or two trans colleagues. Like you said, it's not the most appropriate thing. So I'm hoping to be of service in that way to really lift the burden. If, you know, in the spirit of getting to know one another, there's a lot of fear about saying the wrong thing, particularly, I think, with trans community Are you overstepping to ask if someone is trans? Are you overstepping to ask what someone's prior gender or prior name was? Are these questions that are that are horrible or acceptable? Yeah, I mean, these are the questions that I think this is the information I think people need are like, what is appropriate? What is the etiquette, particularly in the workplace environment? What is okay? What is not okay? And consistently at every audience, we've reached about 20,000 legal professionals in the past two years, remotely, uh, mostly. And consistently, when I poll people about, you know, what is their biggest challenge around LGBTQ plus inclusion, it's always fear of making a mistake. I think that our profession is made up of, you know, very well-meaning people who really don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or step on anyone's toes. I also think, you know, my assumptions as lawyers, we are a lot of perfectionists in the crowd, you know, we just don't want to mess up. And so people really do need the information so that they can gain the confidence to have the interactions and not learning by stepping on someone's toes. So, you know, definitely one of the things I cover when I do consulting with firms is to talk about, you know, here are the questions that you that are not appropriate, like asking what is somebody's name before, like you said, not appropriate to do, making sure that we have places where everybody's using pronouns so that, you know, people can avoid misgendering each other. You know, there's lots of things that we can do in our daily workplace interactions that make, you know, it more safe for LGBTQ plus people to exist. We'll get into a few of them here today, but of course we won't be able to go as far in depth as I'm sure you're able to cover in, you know, more targeted consultancy. Why don't we take a step back to, you know, we were talking about your experiences. We were talking about how, you know, frankly, there there might not be a, a perfect time to transition. Uh, there might not be a perfect place to transition. If, if law school isn't enlightened enough, imagine what it's like for someone, you know, in high school. I guess maybe you can set the stage. What's going on in the broader culture? The the trans community in particular has has found itself in a maybe an unwanted spotlight. Yeah, definitely in the crosshairs. So yeah, taking it back, I think the the big push for for many years within the LGBT uh, legal movement has been around you know same sex marriage, and I was at Lambda Legal during those years as the director of the Transgender Rights Project. And it was a unique time and place for me to be. For many years, I was the only trans person in the legal department. 
And so the only trans person at the table. And it was my role to really kind of raise up the visibility that we need to be doing more for trans people. And so it was, you know, a a battle internally, I will say, um, when there was such a focus on marriage. When we won marriage, I think there was an incredible backlash from our opponents. And the easiest target within our community, the most vulnerable target within our community are trans people. And so you might track this attention around the focus on trans people. Trans people weren't even on the radar during those years with the marriage movement. And I was always like, you know, trying to put us on the radar. And now it was like, oh my gosh, now there are over a hundred bills that are anti-trans being put forward in the U.S. right now. Perhaps you could walk us through a couple of the current bills or recent bills that you've seen sprouting up across the country. Yeah, sure. So two main themes I will flag are around targeting trans girls playing sports and also a theme around trans youth gaining access to medical care that could be very life-saving. So those are the two like most popular anti-trans themed bills that you're seeing around the country. And at the heart of that, like I said, you know, is there's this lack of understanding of who like transgender girls are, that you know, that they're girls that want to play sports and be active and be included. And with trans medical care, there's this lack of understanding that this kind of treatment is actually life-saving. When you say life-saving, is that because of the disproportionately high suicide rate amongst young trans Americans? There's a high suicide rate, and this is around harm reduction. They've seen that the kind of distress that transgender kids experience is very extreme when they need that kind of care. And it's not very drastic. It's not drastic treatment. It's very safe and incremental, and it makes a huge difference in validating the kids. And so I recommend, you know, one resource. I don't know if we could put it in the your resources sure. page here, but there's a tremendous podcast interview with Chris Hayes with Dr. Izzy Lowell, and they really just lay it out in this kind of interview format where he's asking the questions that everybody wants to know about trans medical care, and she explains it in a really basic way. So that's the kind of thing that people need more of. They need the information from the doctors, and they need the facts. But these bills are very are motivated by fear-mongering and a lack of understanding. Why do you think that these bills Im- impacting such a small, and, and by the way, is, that, is it fair to say that the trans community is a, is a small minority? Yeah, I mean, I, the stats from the Williams Institute say there are about 1.4 million trans people in the US. So it's a very small community, yes. A fraction of 1% of the population, yet there seems to be a number of laws and uh, quite a perhaps disproportionate focus. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's politically motivated. And, you know, I think it really gets at people's core fears. But the most offensive part of these bills, I think, is this term, so-called, quote, biological sex that you see kind of undermining the realness of trans people. There's an attempt to erase 
the fact that trans people exist at all. It's not easy for me to be on your show, for example, and come out as openly trans, but it's a decision that I make every day to be out there, to be visible, um, because I know it makes a difference in our in the legal profession and beyond for people to get to know trans people and to understand who we're really talking about. I think it's easy to to kind of pass these bills or to put these bills forward and do this damage because there's a disconnect from humanity. A lot of people don't know a trans person. So there's they have these ideas of like what that might mean. But once you get to know a trans person, just like when you, once you get to know gay people, that was when the movement started to gain power. And so not everybody you know, needs to be out, but to be doing presentations in front of large legal audiences, it makes a difference for people to get to know me, to ask questions. And I hope it changes their minds about my entire community and what we're facing. I commend you on your, your courage on this. I... I imagine there must be some temptation to just kind of remain, how would they even know that that someone's trans? Yeah, and you know, I think there are actually a lot of people, you know, in the legal workplace who are not out, not just as trans, but not out as lesbian, gay, bisexual. We call it the, the legal closet problem. There is a larger number of LGBTQ plus people in law school, and those numbers drop off as people enter the profession. Why? It's not because they're no longer LGBTQ plus. It's because it's not safe for them to be their full authentic selves. And, you know, and so it is a personal choice. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who are not out at work. People don't know that they are transgender and I support them. The work that I do is so that people get to have that choice. Not everybody should have to be out, but I would love a world where people would feel safer to do so. Um, And so, you know, off that point though, you never know who's in the room, right? Like, and so when people say, well, there's no trans people in the room, no harm done. You actually never know. And you never know who maybe has a trans kid. Like lots of partners in law firms said, I have a trans child. And, you know, people were blown away that it just, you never know. You spent a number of years of your career representing trans individuals. Maybe you could share who's, lawyers aren't supposed to have favorite clients. Maybe you can share a couple of your favorite clients and their challenges. Yeah, sure. So yes, I did impact litigation with Lambda Legal. So we filed test cases in federal courts and often did media with that to kind of tell the story of our clients. Um, And so, yeah, I would say one of my most well-known clients was Rubina Asti, who I started representing when she was 92 years old. She came into our office in in New York City and she had transitioned in the 70s and had lived for 30 years stealth. And that's a term meaning that she was not openly transgender. And it wasn't until she was denied Social Security survivor benefits after her husband died that she you know, decided to come out and take the world on. Um, and so we represented her and we filed a petition before, you know, with the Social Security Administration because we knew this was happening to not just Rabina, but to, uh, you know, lots of survivors. And we were successful. And the biggest gift was that, you know, she told her story. She, you know, did a bunch of media. She was on the cover of People magazine. And and one of our colleagues did a tremendous seven minute video that 
I hope you could share in your resources here. Yeah, we'll, we'll include a link in the additional resources section. Yeah, she was my favorite, I feel like, because uh, she was, you know, the equivalent of a trans grandmother that many of us never had. And to have the experience of being accepted by somebody your grandparents' age was very significant to me and I think to a lot of trans and non, you know, non-binary people. So she was a gift. She just passed away this past year, three weeks shy of her 100th birthday, and what a life she lived. Well, I'm sorry for your loss and for her families, um, but it sounds like uh, a real blessing that you were able to meet her and, and help her along her way. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that, you know, every time I was representing a client, I had to have the talk with them about, you know, this is what it means to be a trans person in a Lambda legal case. It's very public. We're very well known. Your life will never be the same. Here's the challenges the media. So you might actually be threatened or you might actually get unwanted attention because of this. We did have that happen to some clients, but I will say that every single time, every client, you know, always said yes and that they were willing. And, and the, the line they always used independently was, I want to make a difference for the rest of my community. So I had the experience of working with some very powerful trans people who put themselves out there in the world and really did make a difference. How did they react when they realized that their lawyer was a trans man? I mean, I think that they trusted me a lot. I felt, you know, there was a deep connection there. They knew I had similar experiences on some level. You know, even if, you know, I was working as an ally, if it was a, you know, a trans person of color or trans woman, we always shared a lot of, you know, connection. And I think that they saw that I was also putting myself out there in in the world in a way that was, you know, I had things at stake, but that I believed in, you know, making a difference for our future generations. So I feel it was powerful in it. And I, I always tell people that it's very important for there to be leadership within the marginalized community, you know, for lawyers, if you're working on a case to make sure that the people who are most impacted and have the most knowledge are part of that case. For those who are earning MCLE credit for this interview, the code is 042516. Again, that's 042516. And now back to the interview. Drew, you mentioned how a number of trans individuals are living their lives. You described it in stealth. Is that a is that a technical term? Well, it's a term I think you'll hear frequently, uh, but it basically means that they're not out or they're they're not openly transgender, for example. Well, maybe you can speak quickly to the history of discrimination for those who were out or who were discovered to be trans in the legal profession or, or in general? Yeah, sure. I, you know, there's terrible st- statistics that I could show you around the discrimination and violence that the LGBTQ plus community faces. And within the larger community, the highest rates are for trans people. One, for example, there was a U.S. trans survey done by National Center for Trans Equality um, that came out in 2015. 
and it's still to date the largest survey of trans people ever done, 27,000 plus trans people. And 40% of the population within that survey have you know, said yes, that they've attempted suicide. That is uh, versus less than 2% of the general population. If you look at murders, the FBI tracks hate crimes. Um, one in five hate crime is against an LGBT person. And within that, transgender women of color have the highest rates of murders. In 2020, in the, in the midst of COVID and everything, there was the highest year on record for known murders of trans people. There were 44 in the U.S. and over 350 worldwide. And the U.S. actually is, has the third highest in the world after Brazil and Mexico. So we're not doing so great overall. So if you look at all these you know, statistics, you look at unemployment and discrimination in healthcare across the board, you'll see that trans people, particularly trans people of color, have the highest rates within the LGBTQ plus community. And then you asked, how does that apply in the legal profession? You know, workplace discrimination is very real. And, you know, I think there are a lot of really wonderful efforts being done to do better around LGBTQ plus inclusion. I can say firsthand because I'm working with amazing um, breadth of clients right now. But I'll say that our profession is really struggling around this issue. We have some great statistics from National Association of Law Placement and National Association of Women Lawyers. And, they, you know, I show these charts and graphs in my presentations, and we have a lot of gaps to fill when it comes to inclusion and, and really um, having workplaces that are set up for LGBTQ plus people to succeed. One area where there seems to be a, pr- a particularly stark contrast is in retention, especially retention and, and advancement. And maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So I mentioned NALP, National Association of Law Placement. They have been tracking LGBT inclusion for 16 years in their reports. And if you look at the track record for you know how have we advanced over those 16 years, We've gone overall from about 1% representation to 3%. But if you break down who is, you know, really advancing, you can see that the highest numbers are summer associates and the lowest numbers are partners. So that retention is very apparent that there's a drop off for LGBT people. And we also know within, you know, who is that within the LGBT community? In their recent report, they talked about white male privilege being a factor here, that those rates are higher, they're getting higher, but it's mostly white gay men. And so there are very significant gaps for LGBTQ plus attorneys of color and, you know, and and specifically bisexual and transgender people within the profession. It doesn't surprise me, I suppose, that the, the highest numbers would be in the younger generation as those maybe also the most likely to be out and yeah i don't think it's necessarily the age i think it's that people are are they enter the profession and they don't advance it's not a good fit they we look at numbers of who you know law firms are promoting or who is laid off first it's often the attorneys of color it's the lgbtq plus attorneys it's the diverse attorneys that you know are are leaving the firm or are somehow not a good fit. And that's what we're trying to get at with, 
you know, looking at policies, practices, but also culture? Is it that the attorneys are, you know, the diverse attorneys are not up to par? Or is it that there are systems in place that are helping certain attorneys succeed? You know, so that's what we're trying to get at here with kind of having those checklists and so on. Maybe this is less of an issue, but I've heard some law firms talk about, you know, one of their challenges is on the retention side isn't necessarily that they're not up to snuff, but maybe it's hard to keep them. Maybe they they don't feel as comfortable with the culture, or maybe they're getting other opportunities, or like you said, maybe they're not getting the support that they need um, professionally. Well, I, I had the opportunity to do a series of interviews with LGBTQ plus associates of color, trans and non-binary attorneys in big law, you know, on a kind of anonymous basis where they trusted to talk to me. And it was really helpful to kind of ask how is it going? What's going on? What do you need? And so I put together one of the the programs that we have is kind of coaching law firms on recruiting and retention. And it's this liquid gold information that people have shared saying, here are the real things that have happened to me in this workplace, even in workplaces that are known to be best places for diversity. The LGBTQ plus attorneys, particularly of color, are having a completely different experience here. And so, you know, we have these anecdotes. Also, you know, we have this information of how are people mentored? You know, mentorship plays a huge role in who gets to make partner. Also, you know, if you don't come from, you know, money and you're a first generation lawyer, like looking at class, you don't have those built in business connections and the network that it takes to really kind of advance to partnership. So there's all these different key points to look at that you want to say, how do we get underrepresented people here at our firm to really stick around? And you have to look at, well, there's a lot of things here that we're missing. So even if a firm was perfectly set up to be completely non-discriminatory, et cetera, the deck just favors certain people. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that we know that structural racism exists. You know, we have the data. We have the data around all these structural barriers that do exist. I mean, if I talked about the NALP data, you know, I also like to point to the National Association of Women Lawyers data. There, if you look at the chart around how many men are in big law and how many women, it's, you know, you can see these two graphs. But then we look at how many white women And then you look at the drop-off for women of color. It's so significant as you move from associate all the way to equity partners. You could see the data and you would question, well, why is this happening? Why aren't we seeing these numbers? And that's where we look at the culture. And like you said, you can look at the, you know, the policies and practices. Do you have a non-discrimination policy? How about, you know, can you use pronouns in your email signature? You could check all these boxes, but if you're not actually using it in the culture, I mean, that's where the conversations really need to happen. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.